0: I noticed <clears throat> I noticed uh, today, uh, as I met with people for our individual meetings, that uh, most people said something like, "I'm feeling more settled down, I've slowed down," some variation of, you know, "We've been here more than a week now, 10 days about." And they said some variation of, I see the direction is that my mind is settled down a little bit. And some people said, I feel more concentrated. And some people said, I'm more alert, I'm more mindful. Some people said, you know, I have more access to my own uh, goodwill. One or another permutation of those. Or, you know, in a more colloquial way, somebody said, I'm just less irritable, you know, that... uh, Uh, Which I I think is, you know, in a certain uh, ordinary way of talking about practice, I think it would be wonderful if the whole world became a whole lot less irritable and we'd stop hurting each other so much. I mean, it doesn't sound as exciting or as metaphysically uplifting as I'm going to get enlightened, but I'm going to not be so irritable would be good. Uh, It's incredibly easy. To become annoyed. I mean, you must. I mean, we know that, and um, and it's a it's a big ego triumph to be able to learn, which we usually people learn at about three or four or five. That it's one thing to become annoyed, and acting on it is something else. So to be able to realize I'm annoyed, and I am nevertheless keeping it together. I think that you know one of the one of the another colloquial way for, that I talk to myself, uh, having had my daughter give it to me in one situation as a mindfulness cue when I got upset about something that was trivial, and I said da 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 da, this and that just happened, and she said, "Mom, get a grip. That's a very good actual instruction. Get a grip. Think it over. Calm down." It's not as enormous as you think. It's workable. Get a grip. But we have to say it in slightly more elevated ways. So So we'll call it concentration, which causes you to be able to get a grip way more easily. And also concentration shows up a lot of times in those 37 wings. It shows up as one of the uh, five spiritual faculties more developed, it becomes one of the five spiritual powers, it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, it's uh, one of the, uh, it's the last often in a traditional list of the eightfold path of practice, and often as if it ends in wise concentration. There's just a sense of concentration, maybe it's the word, and, um, but it brings up in my mind uh, a kind of gravitas uh, that uh, the, uh, the Queen Elizabeth sailing across the ocean is a big, big, heavy ship, so it doesn't roll so much. It it, it could have some waves, and it keeps on going. And I think that that's what happens uh, in a, an analogous way in our own experience when our minds are really settled and composed. Something happens, and we notice it. It's not like it's we don't notice that it's happening. You say, wow, that was... Annoyance just arose in my mind. Or even, and it came up in a question this morning, even, uh, I heard that, and that was an unpleasant thing to hear, but, you know, we'll skip the annoyance, uh, and we'll just deal with what's happening here. That There are all kinds of ways along the way to get what's happening and make a decision about... I'll sit this one out this 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 uh, lure into why don't we have a little annoyance' say you know I'm having a peaceful day now, so I'll skip the annoyance. Thank you very much. It really just flurries up my mind and makes it more complicated for me to see clearly. You know I'm not really suggesting that we become flat in our emotional demeanor. Because I I don't know anybody, I don't know if I would want to be if it were a doable thing, but I want to be dependable in my emotional demeanor, and I think that concentration has a lot to do with it. And I particularly wanted to talk about it because I think sometimes people mistake concentration for the kind of extreme altered states that happen when the attention is focused on one particular thing and maybe there are special, altered, exotic mind states that ensue that we call jhanas. I'm, I'm going to suggest, though, that the mind can be really quite concentrated enough to keep itself stable, get a grip, discern what action is necessary, without it being incredibly altered. Peace is already an altered state of mind. Peace filled with wisdom is a very lovely altered state of mind. You know, I recently, um, I, I, read, I read a novel by Ann Patchett called Bel Canto. Yeah, I mean, how many people have read Bel Canto? It's an amazing, beautiful piece of writing. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fiction, of course. It didn't happen. But it's a lovely fiction. In Belcanto Canto, uh, there's a coup, a military coup, in an unnamed South American country. And there was, several years before the time this book was written, a similar coup in, in in a real country, which gave the author the idea, I'm sure. But in this particular story, it's, um it has a particular um, idiosyncratic twist to it. Uh, there's a coup where uh, the, a group of people representing, in their view, the needs of the people... Uh, Uh, breaks into a party being given at the uh, governor's mansion in order to, or the president's mansion, at the vice president's mansion, that's where it is, where the president is meant to be in attendance uh, to kidnap the president and hold him hostage until they can make their needs known. Unknown to them, the president skips the party, so he's not there. But they break in, and they take over and hold everyone hostage. And it's a party celebrating someone's birthday, and in honor of that, a diva, a wonderful opera singer, has been flown in for the occasion, and she's just finished singing her program. When they break in, they take over everything, and the story begins to unwind. And then really, the the, uh, the captors don't know what to do with all these people. They aren't the people they wanted. They wanted the president and he wasn't there. But they can't just say, well, everybody go. And they have to start to (laughs) figure, I mean, it's taken a long time to figure this out and get in through the air ducts and everything else. So here they are. They've cooed and now what to do? So they let all the women go with the exception of the diva herself. And Two other women, who they don't know, are women because they're dressed as men because they wanted to be part of the revolutionary movement. So, fifty-seven men and three women then spend, according to this novel's <laughs> plot, oh, about two months there before the end of the before the standoff comes to a, a halt. In the meantime, the Red Cross is bringing them supplies. So after a while they develop a community that's carrying on, they can't leave, they get it that they can't leave, they have enough to eat, they are all sleeping on the floor and taking care of their daily needs, and by and by the diva feels a need to sing because she's worrying about not practicing, it just turns out that uh, in this uh, unnamed country there's a music store with the complete repertory of many operas which they ship over and the Red Cross person brings. (laughs) just so happens that someone else who's attending the party is a fantastic musician and although her her, uh, accompanist has died in the original coup, this person can sight-read all this music so that they now start to have singing all the time and then by and by time passes and it turns out that one of the revolutionaries uh singing with his guitar to his friends gets heard and recognizes having a great voice and the diva starts to train him and by and by they start the 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 so-and-so who has cooking talent starts to cook and by and by they're all eating together and by and by, they have a lovely society where some of the people start falling in love with each other. And it's a completely fantastic, and you completely believe it, that all of these people in a safe and protected environment, because they're being held hostage, but now they're safe in a peculiar way. They have everything they need. They have food and drink. They have people cooking. They have people singing to them. No one's attacking them. They don't have to worry about anything. They, 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 after a while, they let them go outside, so now they're playing uh, soccer on the lawn. And they have, it's a, it's a, a utopian society in which you've, it creeps in slowly, slowly. The chief uh, organizer of the coup is now talking to the, the uh, uh, vice president, and it turns out they both play chess. Now they're playing chess together. <laughs> and it's a wonderful story about what would happen if people would wait long enough for their minds to relax and to feel safe and to look around and somehow realize that person is just like me. They're in another role in this life. They happen to be a revolutionary. I happen to be the vice president, but they're a very good chess partner. And by the way, they have other nice talents about them. And you think, you know, as I started, I thought, wow, this is really preposterous. But after a while, you get to believe it. And then I begin to think about the whole world. I thought, what if we all settled down and concentrate And I particularly wanted to tell you that story because they weren't all with their breath. Mm. They were just... They were just hanging out together in a safe environment. So we are doing that even before we do the first thing here of meditation. We've come into a safe environment, and we're hanging out here. when, When you leave tonight, after the talk, please feel free to pick up one of these metasuttas, because... It's really my favorite piece of literature. And I know that Mary Grace read you the whole sutta the other night, uh, and uh, we'll read it all together uh, later on. But since uh, tonight I only wanted to tell you that I want to focus on three lines out of the sutta. It's my favorite thing when I travel. It's the only thing, notes, I take with me to any place and use it to teach out of. There's a line uh, that the first thirteen lines or so talk about um, not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. It talks about ethics. Talks about morality. It really talks about not hurting one another, living in and making a safe environment. Someone told me the other day, apropos of a conversation in which we talked about the fact that we have both been fortunate enough to study with Upandita. And uh, this person said, the best thing that Upandita said to me was, it's very important for you to always be in such a way that people feel safe around you. I thought that's a lovely thing, especially you think about Upandita is known because he's got a tremendous mastery of the intricacies of the practice of meditation and all kinds of extraordinary meditative feats. And here he said that what's really important is that people feel safe around you. And it's a very, very deep teaching. I appreciate it very, very much. So after all these six lines about not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, it says, Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. I think that's the key line in gladness and in safety. When you live in a community where everyone is vowed to morality, vowed to creating a safe community, you feel safe and you feel glad. It lifts up the heart. All of these people are taking care of me. All of these people have taken me on as their project to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I think, my clue, my, my reading of this sutta, is it then goes on to say wishing in gladness and safety for all beings to be well. I think that our capacity to wish that depends on our feeling both glad and safe. That that's the prerequisite for it. That we feel somehow, ah, it's okay. The two other lines I want to mention are the lines omitting none. It then goes on to say, wishing for all beings. May all beings be, be at ease. And then it says these and those and these and those and far and near and born and not born. Omitting none. And that's a radical thing to say. to be able to have an intention to have that kind of a heart for everyone, no matter who and it doesn't come because you've arm-wrestled your mind to the ground it comes because you realize in a moment of wisdom that emerges after the mind stops being confused that everyone is just like us everyone's a person everyone is doing the best that they can This is a line out of uh, uh, a poem about metta, about loving, from uh, Nyanapanaka, who uh, was a really wonderful, venerable Theravada monk who died just in la- in, in about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So that what really this kind of um, unlimited kindness... Is uh, embraces all beings knowing well that we are fellow travelers through this round of existence and that we are all overcome by the same law of suffering. It's not because we've forgotten who we like or who we don't like or who it's good to go home with and who it's not good to go home with and where's a safe place to be and where's not, but that everybody's a person, all these beings. And everybody is subject to the same law of suffering. And the last line that I want to bring up for today is a line near the end where it talks about having established this kind of heart as a sublime abiding. It says, by not holding to fixed views, by not holding to fixed views, a pure hearted one is not born again into this world. By not holding to fixed views, I think is, is such a maybe that's the whole key phrase of the whole teaching. If you think about the the uh, the uh, message of Bel Canto of that novel, the views that everyone had to begin with: this is a bad person, this is a good person, this is a rebel, this is a uh, a harmless person who just came to sing, this is a an illiterate peasant, this is a this, this is that. I'm, I'm better. I'm worse. I'm different. They're other, and the place that you come to where you think we're all in the same boat. We are really all in the same boat. That they're all in the same house and all in the same world together. And when the mind is safe, it can get to be friends with everyone. It holds out a lot of hope for me for the whole world. So I think that the, the biggest. Uh, uh Oh, I don't know it's the biggest, but perhaps the biggest uh excitement for me in thinking about my own mind and heart and their changes over time is that maybe I could get to the place where uh I could forget the old stories about people. I used to not like this, and I used to not like him, and I used to not like her, and I once upon a time was hurt by her. The first beginning lines of the Dhammapada, you probably know, are, he wronged me, he abused me, he hurt me. Uh, people who uh, dwell on these words, suffering follows them as, a whore, as the cart follows the ox. And then the opposite of it, he wronged me, he abused me, he hurt me. Those people who abandon these thoughts, happiness follows them like their shadow. It's just really how you train the mind to see uh, how we could live. Not even for the benefit of other people, for my own benefit. One of my favorite metta chants begins, May I be free of enmity and danger. And in the very beginning, I thought it meant, May nobody come after me. Like, may I be free of enemies coming after me and I'd be in danger. And I think I thought that because in the initial teachings I heard that the Buddha had taught it to monks as, a, uh, as an amulet, as a safety against danger should anything attack them. <laughs> and I think it most deeply means to me, may I be free of enmity in my mind, which would be a danger to my own well-being. It really stands in the way of my own living in a completely friendly mind. Out of which and into which I can exchange the sense of living in a shared world with other people, mm-hmm. just like me, so I want to tell you a story. it's an old story, but it 's probably the best and funniest story, so it, it works still, and it makes the it makes the connection between concentration and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Because I want to tell you again and again that concentration is not only developed through bringing the attention to one object over and over. You can do that. Bringing your attention back to the breath is a lovely thing to do. Anapanasati practice is a wonderful practice to do. And you can do it by moment-to-moment mindfulness, sequential moments of mindfulness, a mindful day builds gravitas in the mind, builds that kind of sturdy base through from which the mind doesn't get so quickly flurried. Uh, I have to do the math on this. Twelve years ago, this would be, when my eldest grandson was in the sixth grade, I was invited to his class here in Marin County, sixth grade class studying about the Buddha, I'm still going to sixth grade classes. I'm running out of grandchildren. I just last week did the last sixth grade class of my particular progeny's progeny. So uh, I'll have to go to somebody else's class. Sixth graders study. <laughs> sixth graders study India and religions of the world, and uh, and I'm a local resource for them. So twelve years ago, I went to Collins' class to talk about. Uh, the Buddha and what did he teach and they had studied a unit on the Buddha and read about it and so I started in and I wanted to look uh, I wanted to make mindfulness sound like an ordinary thing that people did because uh, it is an ordinary thing that people do and besides I'm also Colin's grandmother and I didn't want to look too peculiar so (laughs) so I was really I was really emphasizing the Normal, obvious, concentrating benefits of mindfulness. You pay attention moment to moment. It's good for you. So I said, look, if you're in, in class here, you pay attention, you don't miss what the teacher says, you don't forget to write down the homework, you can work with your colleagues at your workplaces without being distracted by what's going on around you. Everybody seemed to be agreeing. I said, so mindfulness is paying attention, moment to moment, on what's happening, uh, and if you do that, then you make decisions that are wise. Who here knows what wise is? So a few people offered that. My grandpa, he smoked cigarettes, even though he knew they weren't wise. It wasn't wise, and he got sick. And other people said, "This my grandmother was wise or wasn't wise. They knew about wise." Mm-hmm. So I thought I was doing great, that's what I wanted to say. Mindfulness leads to wisdom, pay attention. And uh, one boy said, um, raised his hand, and he said, um, we read in our book on India and meditation that some people, when they meditate, they can read your mind, they can tell you what's going on in your mind now, or what's going to happen in the future, or what happened in the past. Said, is that true? So I said, well, you know, actually, some people seem, when they meditate, to begin to develop some kind of an extraordinary capacity to know things that are extra. So sometimes that happens, but really, that's not the point of mindfulness. The point of mindfulness, and I'm back to the same old that's doing your homework and not forgetting. Anymore. And and I go on three sentences, and the same boy raises his hand, and he said, in our book, it showed people uh, walking across hot coals and other people lying on a bed of nails um, because they were meditating. Is that true? So I said, well, some people, they meditate so hard that their mind becomes absolutely so still and so strong that they can't actually feel pain in the same way that you and I might feel the pain. But there are very few people who do that, and that's mostly not why people practice, and the real reason... (laughs) And I said another half a sentence, and that same little boy... He said, Colin said that you once met a woman who was such a great meditator that she could walk through walls. Is that true? <laughs> so I said, well, actually, I, uh, I did know a woman. Her name was Deepa Ma. She was a Bengali woman from India. She, uh, uh, she was the teacher of some of my teachers. And they said that she was an extraordinary meditator and that she could walk through walls. They said, did you ever meet her? And I said, yes, I did. They brought her to the United States, and she actually visited at my house. And someone said, "Uh, did you talk to her? I said, I did talk to her. said, did you see her walk through any walls? (laughs) I said, I didn't see her walk through any walls, but I assumed that if they said that she could, that she could. Somebody said, how did she do it? I said well I don't know exactly but my teacher said that she could concentrate so hard that her molecules all disintegrated and then they passed through the wall and then on the other side they reconstituted and here are 27 people nodding their head like, that seemed perfectly reasonable to them. You know? <laughs> and, you know, we went on and we did some other things. We did breathing and we did some yoga exercises. I had a whole morning, it was very pleasant, went home. Three days later, I got a big envelope in the mail. Uh, you know, as I just got one last week from the current sixth grade writing a Big envelope in the mail. With uh, twenty-seven letters in it, and uh, dear, dear Sylvia, dear Sylvia, dear Sylvia, dear Grandma, and they all were all the same. Thank you so much for coming to my class and teaching. I liked the breathing exercise. I liked what you said. I liked this. I liked that. Very nice. One of them <laughs> from the same boy who uh, <laughs> said, uh, "Dear Sylvia, I well, thank you very much for coming to the class. I liked everything you did." But I've been thinking about one thing, he said. What if, in the middle of passing through the wall, she became distracted? (laughs) Would she be stuck in the wall forever? Yours truly, Robert. Great. I really thought that was a great letter. You know, first of all, I, I loved it that he was so determined, you know, that he really, you know, he was really engaged and interested and determined. I thought that Robert's going to go far. And also, that it's actually a fabulous description of uh, my experience because there's a certain way in which. When I am distracted, I get stuck in walls. I get stuck in walls of anger. I get stuck in walls of resentment. I get stuck in walls of pity and walls of envy and walls of desire and walls of craving. I get stuck. I get stuck in walls that I construct with my own mind, with the stories I tell about what I need or what I don't need, what I want and what I don't want. Every story of imperative constructs a wall for me. And I continue to suffer and be stuck in that wall of anger or envy or resentment or lust or whatever until I notice that I'm building it. And when I stop building it with the stories in my mind, the wall disappears and I can walk through it. So I'm glad you like this story I don't tell it so often because it's a long time ago but it's maybe the greatest story I because mean, it's got so much knowledge in it so much wisdom when the mind is clear it's pretty wise it figures out and we have all kinds of um, all of us now probably are beginning to hear stories about or meet people who are meeting their death in a in a uh, not happy way, but in a calm way. This is what's happening. So, what's happening? It isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. That kind of wisdom that says, "I, you know, what's the alternative?" It's when my mind has not got enough concentration in it to keep it from flurrying then it goes into default positions of what we call all of those hindrances. It falls into lust or anger or exhaustion or restlessness or doubt because it hasn't held itself steady enough to say, wait a minute, I was thinking the story I wanted to tell is too long. I'll tell this other one. I was, I was thinking about the things that flurry the mind. I, I listen a lot to ads. And I'm driving a long way on the highway. I sometimes turn on the radio to keep myself alert. And I listen, I, I listen to ads. And uh, what was the most recent one I heard? A very seductive voice saying, you deserve a duck's bed. I thought, well, first of all, I don't even know what a duck's bed is. But it was a very seductive voice saying that I deserved a duck's bed. It was a very big compliment for me, because it sounded like a duck's bed is a good thing, and I, and I deserve it. You know? But, you know, it's a, it's a completely bizarre thing. Who deserves anything, you know? But somehow, for, my, for what do I deserve it? For my wisdom, because I lived long, or what? But I, I watch how the mind could, I could imagine, <laughs> I don't want a new bed, I like my bed, but I'm very, I'm, I'm certainly aware of the, the innumerable times where I'm someplace and I walk by a, I walk by a pizza restaurant and a good smell comes out and I think, oh, I'm hungry, I could eat that pizza right now, you know? And you have to think, is now a good time? Sometimes it's the right time to eat pizza, sometimes it's not. But it's very easy to have all of a sudden out of nowhere a a desire arise and then to make a decision, is this a wise time? Not a wise time. If I say it's not a wise time I'm going to have to to dinner in an hour and I go ten feet away and it no longer smells of pizza, the desire is gone, gone. It's like the Queen Mary goes forward through the wave and does not turn into the pizza shop. (laughs) So that's an easy one, the pizza one. But there's so many other things. I might buy this. I might need it. The whole of our economy based on the seduction. Someone told me the number of ads uh, that we see every day, either on on TV or here on the radio or open a magazine, full of things saying you need this. My friend Sharon told me the best story years and years ago. Probably told it to you too. So she's walking down the um, in the old to the in the uh, old city of Jerusalem, walking down through the Jaffa Gate. There's a an, uh, a market uh, and there are vendors either side of the steps going down through the Jaffa Gate uh, as you go down to the Western Wall. And the vendors are they're not at all physically uh, aggressive, but they're very aggressive in their sales technique you know come in please look at this come in please look at this and Sharon said she was walking down keeping her eyes straight ahead and all of a sudden one of the one of these people with the calling in technique said stop I have exactly what you need (laughs) and she said I almost stopped but then I thought to myself how does he know exactly (laughs) what I think you know but if somebody says, I have just what you need, or, uh, <laughs> the mind is really peculiar. What <laughs> kinds of things that people do spontaneously because they're confused by lust? Or because they're confused by, by all of a sudden anger coming up? Some, something isn't going right, it isn't what you want, and the mind gets all mad and then it says something that it re- the mouth says something that it immediately regrets afterwards. Um, this, this year's uh, performance this year's ballet repertory includes Romeo and Juliet, and uh, uh, it's a really gorgeous production, And uh, like all uh, dramatic pieces, especially ballet where they don't talk, so they have to be overly dramatic. Person feels drawn by love, they leap together into a, a, a romantic liaison, even though it's going to bring their whole two warring families to blows. And nobody, they don't take any time. They're, oh, I want this. And then families get mad and they say, Oh, killing you. And so there's a lot of, and the, 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 the parents tell Romeo and Juliet no getting married, they kill themselves. And then in the last minute, here come the parents, and then they're really lamenting in a very painful last scene. And you think, everybody could have stopped. They could have fought it over. They could have been, waited a little bit and not been so mad about everything. It would take all little time from now till tomorrow or the next day or the next day. But you know, something takes over, a huge wave takes over, the, takes over the mind. I have to have this. I'll get it whatever way. I was thinking even that the feelings of exhaustion, uh, that, um, that some people, their mind seems to run out of steam as the default position to something else. They, they feel in some way uh, compromised, and the mind starts making stories about, Ugh, my life is too much, I can't do it, it's too hard, this task is too hard. I was teaching in Mexico uh, not so long ago, and uh, the place where I was teaching was a fair walk um, from the place that I was staying. And at the end of a teaching, after I had a good time teaching one afternoon, was walking back to my place where I was staying, and um, I, I was walking. And I heard my mind start in with um, uh, a, a kind of a lament. And the lament was like, "I'm so tired. I'm really tired. I'm exhausted." You know, it was really stupid of you to, you know, you shouldn't be doing this anymore at your age, coming to Mexico in a hot season. And you know that the teaching room was far from your room. It was very stupid. I mean, you should have retired already. Why are you here? And and all of which doesn't do anything to lift up the mind or clarify. Uh, You know, I'm really... I'm, I'm, I'm so exhausted, I'm feeling exhausted. I do this and I exhaust myself. I'm actually often, I'm, in, in real life, I'm actually quite a vigorous person. I'm really exhausted. And then I'm walking along hearing this litany of, I'm exhausted, I'm exhausted, I'm exhausted. And suddenly I realize, I'm not exhausted, I'm hot. I'm hot, that's all. <laughs> you, know, you feel something, your mind is confused, you can't even name what it is that you got. I'm hot. I go in my room, take a shower, and I was finished being exhausted. <laughs> but you get compromised in some way. you get too hungry, you get too hot, you get too anything for your mind to hold itself steady, and it jumps to a wrong conclusion, and then that spirals down on itself and the same with the 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 uh, uh, the the uh, the mind that easily worries. Anybody here easily worries? We should have a club of easy worries. I actually I, I would be in the club, but I am a recovering <laughs> <laughs> warrior because I have so many many millions of times now re-experienced worry 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 worry. Oh, phew, it's okay. All of that worrying was so futile. That was really stupid. It was a waste of time. I couldn't have done anything anyway, and just the worrying has warned me I'll never worry again. And then 15 minutes later, there's some other provocation to worry again. It's a glitch of the mind. It's some sort of neuronal imprint. Someday, when they do the whole DNA, the genome, and they get it all worked out, it'll turn out that it's a glitch of the mind, and that's a glitch that I was born with. But I am determined. I can't actually get rid of it either. I think that it's it's probably a neuronal squiggle that runs one way or the other way. So when something happens that could be worrisome, my mind immediately says, "Uh uh-oh. But then I say, look, it just did that uh uh-oh. Don't believe it. And I don't. That's the big difference. You know when you're in an airport and it says, attention, ladies and gentlemen, think, ah, something terrible happened. Uh, (laughs) LAUGHTER how many times have you heard them say, attention, ladies and gentlemen, please keep your personal belongings in view, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in that 30 microseconds in between, the mind that's going to jump, alarmed, but you know, it could just, uh, ah, uh-uh, Sylvia, so we'll just stay right there, keep it together, get a grip. It's not you. It's not you. If there's something wrong, you'll find out about it. It actually works. You do it long enough. I wish... That you, it would, I could tell you that you can um, uh, undo those hooks altogether. You know, the end of 2001 where they're unscrewing Hal. And uh, you remember the computer in the end of 2001? They're unscrewing Hal. I feel bad for Hal, because you always hear Hal saying, please don't do that. Because he's a computer, but he talks. And it's bizarre to feel bad for this really evil computer but I do but I wish I could tell you that you could unscrew the mind that way but I, it's not my experience that you can but it is my experience that you can get to be so familiar with it and say I see you mind but I'm not doing it I'm not doing it I'm doing something else and it's always such a relief Phew. I could have done that but I didn't so I'll, I'll sit this one out too they mind flurries. If I start to... Say, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I, I'm pretty confident. I have a lot of faith these days. Much more than when I started. Uh, not so, I, I have confidence in myself, but I also have confidence and absolute faith in this is the path and this, there is a freedom and it is attainable and people do it. And I like to think about the Buddha being a human being and he did it and, and we can... And, uh, and even, I'd like to think that I will, or we will. That uh, the, the story of when the Buddha is uh, sitting on that f- night of his enlightenment under the tree and um, is assailed by the forces of Mara. Uh, he says, presumably in the, in the description of that moment, I see your forces, your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I think that's the best line, I am not afraid. I don't think there's anything that we can say probably that makes us feel better than I am not afraid. It's like I think the first words of the metta resolves is may I feel safe. I think the most thing that we want to do, someone pointed out to me today in one of our meetings that the four things uh, that many of us are saying, may I feel safe, may I feel content, May I feel strong? May I live with these are the four things that we most want to ha- most want to have happen. We could, be, instead of saying "May I," which is I think a lovely construction, could say, "What do you most hope? I hope I'll be safe. I hope I'll be content. I hope I'll be strong, and I hope my life will be smooth and easy." That's what I hope. Those are the wishes of my heart. You can say it's mindfulness of the wishes of my heart. So I I think that what I want to do with the rest of the time is I want to make one point that's going to involve having you do a meditation along with it. Because with all of these um, five different um, flurry energies, you know what I think about a lot, you know those little uh, glass balls with a picture of a, a snowman in it and you shake it up and it's full of snow and then you put it on your desk... And the snow falls down, and you can see the snowman. I think all of those hindrances flurry up the mind, and then you can 't see what to do and If the mind unflurries, you can see what to do. Well, this is what I should do. This is what I can do. this is what i can 't do i the wisdom to see the difference i 'll do it and really it 's concentration that settles down the flurry always because there are. Uh, in the concentrated mind, there are five particular components to a concentrated mind. I'll tell them to you as we do this meditation because each of those components is an antidote to one of those flurries. You'll see it when we do it together. Why just sit in an easy way? You don't have to make yourself stiff in your posture. <laughs> sit in an easy way. But close your eyes, with your chest in an open way, and just be in touch for a moment with the breath coming in and out by itself. In the next moments, try to uh, keep your attention with breath as it begins and ends and even disappears for a moment and comes up and down. You might imagine it as the sun rises over the horizon, goes over the sky, disappears behind the horizon, comes up again and down again. See if you can be with six arisings and settings of the breath. Sustaining the attention over a period of time with a continuous event that's changing and changing and your attention staying with it as it goes through the changes and through the changes, that sustaining normally brings a certain amount of confidence to the mind. It's the antidote to the doubt. It's the antidote to the doubting voice that says, I can't do it. The mind, the attention that is sustainable undoes that thought, says, look, I can, so do it. I can do this. As you continue to be with the experience of breath coming in and out, see if you can bring your attention to the very beginnings and the very ends. of an in-breath and the beginning and end of an out-breath. We did that four-point breathing the other day just for a little bit. Of course you notice the whole event of the breath but notice the very moment it begins, the very moment the in-breath ends, the very moment that. Our breath begins the very moment that ends. Hope that you felt a little bit waked up. That that brought you some energy. It's the beginnings and it's looking at looking for and finding tiny points in your experience, tiny discrete points in your experience, aiming your attention at tiny discrete points that wakes up the mind. mind is a little bit waked up and there's a cool breeze coming through, sit up straight and as you breathe, smile and try to feel the smile all the way through your body. Sometimes if I'm really wanting to bring up a feeling of tingling or rapture in my body, I smile even harder. And see if you feel a certain vibrancy in your body. It's usually a pleasant feeling. Certainly made pleasant by the smiling. It's called rapture, that kind of pleasant tingliness. And it's the antidote to uh, negativity in the mind. It's the antidote to aversion. It sweetens the mind. You can relax the smile now. And for the next six breaths, take slightly longer breaths than usual for the next six breaths, just a little bit, not hyperventilating, just a slightly longer breath in, and then a long breath out. You might want to blow it out between pursed lips. It's a calming breath, long breath in, long breath out six times. I'm thinking that those long breaths probably calmed the mind, calmed out the rapture a little bit. Just for the last few seconds, sit with your intention on the whole of your body, this body, this live and breathing body. See if you can hold in your whole attention from the bottoms of your feet through your whole legs and hips and bottom and torso and shoulders and arms and head, if you can hold all together that whole feeling, body sitting, nothing else but this body sitting. Breathing, body, sitting. We gather up our whole attention and we put it purposefully and with determination in one place. It turns out to be the antidote to uh, desire and lust in the mind which is a mind looking around for something else. Because just for this moment, there's just this. Take a long breath in and out. And open your eyes. All of those ways of using the breath are ways of consolidating the attention, concentrating it in this moment. Concentration has within it the factors of calm and rapture, one-pointedness, keen perception, and um, steadiness. Sustainingness. They are the antidotes to the hindrances. You don't have to remember to breathe in this way or that way or the other way. All you have to do is remember to breathe. And remember to put your foot down purposely, or pick your arm up purposefully, or take this bite mindfully, or stand in the shower mindfully. In every moment that we bring ourselves entirely here with awakened, alert mind we create the response to any flurry in the mind and our own clear mind and good heart is what's left. So we'll sit for a minute.